0: Acts chapter 6 verses 1 through 7, we've been studying through the book of Acts and it's important for us to always recalibrate ourselves to understand what's happening in the book of Acts. Um, God has entered history in Jesus, Jesus has this whole life in ministry and then dies on a cross, is raised from the dead, ascends into heaven, actually told us that in his ascension better things would come on our behalf because he would send the Holy Spirit who begins to call a people together which is the church which is really important for you to understand that as you read the beginnings of this community, if you follow Jesus, you're a part of this. And this isn't just you being incorporated into, hey, I get to go to heaven when I die, but you really and truly have been incorporated into a community who's meant to bear witness to the saving purposes of God for all of human life. That sounds really big, but the Bible talks about this. Paul says that it's actually through the church, he says this in the book of Ephesians, that the manifold wisdom of God would be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. That's the church you're a part of. It doesn't always feel like that, does it? We don't always think about it like that, do we? But that's true. That if you believe in Jesus, you've been incorporated into this kind of community. This community that experiences the palatable presence of God. That experiences the power of God on display. That moves in hearts so much that we don't even view our possessions as our own, but as God's and, if need be, our neighbors. When people have need, they meet them. But the thing I love about the book of Acts is it's also real and talks about sin in the midst of the church, which gives credence to our own personal struggles and our struggles within our churches. And today is no different. Uh, Today, we see a specific problem in this church, and the problem is discrimination. But the solution is incredibly prompt, and it's root to shoot. By that, I mean, if you think about a plant, the root produces healthy leaves, the shoot, the solution that the apostles apply is a root-to-shoot solution. So let's read these seven verses uh, so we know where we're going. Acts chapter 6, starting in verse 1, we'll read through verse 7. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, who we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. Philip, Prochorus, and Nicanor, Timon, Parmenius, and Nicholas, a a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed, and they laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Let's pray. Father, our prayer this morning, my prayer is that the word of God would go forth and all of us would become obedient to the faith. I know that there are those in this room who are strong in faith. God, I pray that you would keep them persevering and make them even more obedient to the faith. There are those of us in this room that are struggling in our faiths and wrestling with questions. God, let the word of God go forth to us. God, and there are those in this room who have no faith at all, admittedly so, um, I pray that the word of God would go forth and that you would show yourself as both Lord and Christ as you have to so many in this book that we're reading. God, you promise that your word will not return void, but will do all that you have purposed for it. Have your way with us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So I'm going to ask with a show of hands, how many of you all in this room have ever experienced culture shock? So maybe half, a little over half the room. My bet is all of you in this room have experienced it at some level. So if you ever were getting married um, or were dating somebody and went to the other person's home to meet their family, many of you have experienced culture shock. I remember when my wife first met my family, she sat there afterwards and was like, did you recognize that everybody talks at the same time? She's like, are you guys Italian? I'm like, no, we're actually just kind of UK people. in And she's like, everybody talks at the same time. There's like seven conversations going on and nobody seems confused. That was a real culture shock moment for her. I had the privilege of marrying one of my best friends who's now the lead pastor at Redemption Tempe. His name's Ricardo Stewart, African-American guy whose mother grew up in rural Mississippi, father grew up in South Central Los Angeles and he married a Caucasian woman Um, and their rehearsal dinner was nothing short of hilarious. (laughs) To watch these two cultures intersect, if it was just Ricardo's family, rural South, African-Americans from the rural South, and African-Americans from South Central Los Angeles alone would be very interesting. But you add to it this family that's kind of half Portuguese descent. And in the midst of it was Ricardo's family brings up this big barbecue trailer. And they're making, everybody's laughing and moving from one side of the room. And slapping each other and laughing. And Holly's family's like this. And you know Holly's family's looking going, what did she get us into? And then Ricardo's family's like, did we marry a family of statues? Or what did we marry here exactly? Culture shock is real. And culture is incredibly powerful, and none of us can get away from it. Tim Keller says, culture is like rain. No matter how many clothes you put on, you still get wet. Culture is a reality. Culture is human life. We create it, and we receive it. One of my favorite definitions of culture is by a man named Ken Myers, who leads a great organization called Mars Hill Audio, if you're interested in looking it up. He says this about culture. Culture is what human beings make of the world in both senses. Now, you're going, well, what does he mean by both senses? So it's what human beings, which is what you and I all are, What human beings make of the world in both senses. Here's what he means. Culture is what we make, what we do on an everyday basis. The organizations we create, the homes that we form, the buildings that we erect, right? The sports teams that we coach. It's what we make. Culture is that. Even the pictures that our kids draw in the third grade, right? And everything in between. It's what we make and then what we make of the world, how we receive the world is also culture. So in short, culture is human life. Culture, therefore, has very positive aspects to it. And if you're a Christian who believes the Bible and believes in sin, there's incredible distortions of the way in which God intended human life to function in relation to the rest of life that's in culture as well. So there's things we can affirm and there's things we have to evaluate and critique. What is happening in the book of Acts at the very beginning is that culture has negatively infected the church and it's actually affecting people in catastrophic ways. So let's look at Acts chapter 6 verse 1. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, there's amazing things happening through the life of this church under the power of God. In these days, when disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose by the Hellenists against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Here's the problem. The problem in this church at this point is discrimination. No bones about it doesn't matter who you read, biblical scholar, commentator. No matter if you just read this verse, you'd have to go, why were the Hellenists being neglected? And the conclusion is this was discrimination. Now, here's what I want you to understand. How does discrimination take root inside the church? And maybe it isn't even that it took root, but it was always there, which is more likely. Here's what I want you to understand about culture. Unexamined, uncritiqued culture has idolatrous consequences. Now look at that phrase, and I want you, we've already explored the word culture, but now it's really important for you to understand idolatrous. Most of us, when we think about idolatry, wrongfully only think about a golden calf that's erected that we bow down and worship. And we go, I've never made a golden calf or we think of like a totem pole that people bow down and worship and we go that's not us. But idolatry in the end is your motivations, how you're being driven from your heart and how you're acting when it's out of the reference or out of the power or away from the intentions of God. It may be a pursuit, a real pursuit of your human heart but misdirected away from God and Drawn on in places apart from God. So it's been said before that idolatry, if you want to really bring it into your space, is whatever has functional control of your life at any given moment that's not God. Whatever's functionally controlling you at any given moment that's not God. Now the questions have to arise. What in the end controls us? What shapes our view of what the great life is? What shapes and motivates us for what we're going to go after for the rest of our Sunday and into our Monday? And what I want to submit to you is you embody and I embody views of the world and motivations in what we're going to pursue that are more shaped by an idolatrous, meaning anti-God culture, than they are by God and his son Jesus Christ. And having an unexamined examined culture has idolatrous consequences. That's what's happening in this passage. Inside this culture, there was a clear division between Jews and Greeks. That's what Hellenists are. And there were Jewish Greeks and Hebrews. And in the end, the Hebrews had all the power at this time inside the church as they're coming to faith. And they were neglecting The widows, the Greek widows, they were neglecting the Hellenist widows. And this was having idolatrous consequences, which was affecting real people. Now, this is an incredibly important reality for you to understand. Idolatry affects people, and God loves people. Idolatry negatively affects people. And God loves people. Therefore, God hates idolatry. John Calvin, a very famous reformer, said this. Every person bears the divine image. And so when anyone is injured, the heart of God is wounded. Let me read that again. If you have a pen, you can write this down. Every person bears the divine image, and so when anyone is injured, the heart of God is wounded. Now, what's important for us to realize when we look at human beings is human beings are made in the image of God. God determined when he made Adam and Eve, and he said, therefore, go forth, be fruitful and multiply, is that God is so passionate about his glory that he said, I'm going to create Men and women tell them to be fruitful and multiply, and every time they give birth to a child, there's new image of God being born, which means the glory of God's going on display. Every time a human being is born, every time a human being lives, every time a human being walks. So look around the room just for a minute, just a brief glance. You don't need to turn your head all the way around. There's a lot of image of God in this room, which means there's a lot of glory of God in this room. And if God is passionate about his glory, he's passionate about people. That is why Calvin can say, every person bears the divine image, so when anyone is injured, the heart of God is wounded, and I'll add to this, and the glory of God is marginalized. So one of the reasons when the apostles have this complaint brought to them, and the areas that they are living in line with the purposes, plan, and heart of God, they take it so seriously is because they're passionate about the glory of God, therefore concerned about people. And people were being marginalized, and here's why. They had unexamined culture that I would argue likely they didn't even fully understand. Because you have to ask a question in verse 1. Now in these days, the disciples are increasing. A complaint arises against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Why and how were they being neglected? You could have one thought that inside where the distribution was happening, there was a line for the Hebrew widows. And then there was a line for the Hellenist widows. And they went over and took all the resources first to the line in a very explicit way. They went over, they took the resources to this line, they gave them all out, and then they're like, eh, no more. Maybe that's the way it went down. I don't think so. I think it likely was far more implicit than it was explicit in the church. Now, likely, I probably should correct myself, likely it's a bit of both. Because I think what's happening inside the church, the primary problem is the deep-seated dislikes that are present in their culture at large are manifesting themselves in the church. They're equally as alive in the church. The deep-seated dislikes and division Out in the culture are present in the church. Now that is very problematic if this is a community of the gospel in which Paul says that this gospel has come into real human life and divided, torn down the dividing walls of hostility that are present between people. So that becomes really, really problematic. And it means we've got to really evaluate what it is that's infecting us as a culture. But the question is, how did it play out, explicitly or implicitly? I think it had a lot of implicit realities to it, meaning all the power, or predominantly most of the power at this moment is built up in the Hebrews. They're all Jews. There's Greek Jews and then there's the Hebrew Jews. All the power is developed there. And there's a cliche phrase that's true in society at large. It's why it's become cliche. And it says this, birds of a feather flock together, right? Birds of a feather flock together. So in the end, the power's residing with the Hebrews. They know who they know. So a widow comes in and they go, I knew her husband. I'm going to give her what she needs, resources. Oh, this widow, she was friends with my daughter. I'm going to give her what I need. They know her. They know her. Then all of a sudden somebody walks in who's a Hellenist widow and they begin to look like I don't totally know them and then deep within them they're going, you know what, those Greeks kind of stink. Those Greeks don't work very hard. They're not really worthy of this and all of a sudden somewhat explicitly, somewhat implicitly they just kind of go, oh man and behind them there are three more widows I know that are Hebrews. So all of a sudden now, there is discrimination and neglect happening to the Hellenite widows. Now something you have to understand, in this passage it says there's a daily distribution. The early church shows that there was deep concern for the marginalized, the oppressed, the poor. And widows epitomize that. In this day and age, your power was contingent and dependent upon a man. If your man died, your husband died, you are totally powerless. You're poor, you will be marginalized, you will be ostracized, you will become an outcast. The church said we are to care about because Jesus told us to care about the poor, the marginalized, the outcast. He showed that we were to care about them, but now in their caring, they're still discriminating because they've been more affected in this moment by the idolatrous misdirected ways of culture than they have by the gospel. Paul shows us this is true. In Romans chapter 12, verse 2, the Apostle Paul says this Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Keep that up there. Church, listen to me. Some of you have read this verse a lot but you've never taken the time to go, I really need to evaluate my views. I need to evaluate my views of possession, my views of business, my views of family, my views of politics, my views of anyone that's the other, and see, are my views conformed to the ways of this world, or are they transformed by the way of Christ? by the person of Christ, by the reality of what he's done in the world. An unexamined life will lead you to false worship, and it will affect people. Idolatry affects people. So think about this for a minute as we step back. We live in a culture that we've made and that we're receiving. It's called the American culture. 21st century American culture, and if we just use this for a minute as a case study, let's use the topic of freedom, because Americans love freedom, and let me tell you this, as a Christian, let me just start by saying this first, if you have a hard time answering the question what you are first, a follower of Jesus or an American, I promise you, you've given into idolatry. Jesus is the Lord of lords and King of kings, and he reigns far supreme over any nation. So to start off with, but as Americans, we love freedom. As Christians, should we love freedom? Yes. The question is, what kind of freedom? But the New Testament tells us it's for freedom's sake that Christ has set us free. But we have myths, lies about freedom in our culture. There is this major lie about the autonomous individual. You are free to be whoever you wanna be. And the way it begins to manifest itself in our homes, in our businesses, in our neighborhoods is, don't you dare tell me how to live. I'm my own person. I'll live whatever way I wanna live. Why are you concerned about me? Worry about yourself. Well now, if you live in a home with many people like that and they say, why are you worried about me? Worry about yourself you're gonna say, well, I am worried about myself and what you're doing is affecting me. Your laziness is affecting me. Your lack of morality is affecting me. Your lack of awareness of everybody else's calendar is affecting me. Your anger is affecting me. Your hatred's affecting me. The spew that comes out of your mouth is affecting everybody else. The lie of an autonomous individual is just that. It is a lie. That isn't freedom, folks. That's, in fact, slavery. God did not make human beings to be anything but dependent upon each other. And if we're dependent upon each other, what other people do affects us and what we do affects other people. That's fact. Here's another myth of freedom in our culture, the freedom of the market. Now, let me just play my hand here. I'm a free market person, okay? So I'm not positioning myself towards socialism. But listen to me. There is a huge myth in American culture that if we believe in its false form will negatively affect people. And it's the idea that the market is totally neutral, it's like a law of nature, like gravity. Folks, who makes the market? You know this is true. If you've ever studied American history, why did the Great Depression happen? Because everybody got scared and pulled the money out of the market. We make markets. Economies function on trust. If you begin to turn in on yourself and go, it's all about me, trust will be frayed, people will be impacted. If you don't think the markets that we espouse and say they're totally free, that freedom is not inhibited by sin, you're wrong. And here's what I'm talking about right now. I'm talking about the church the way we view these things, with a serious focus on the poor, oppressed, marginalized, and downtrodden. This matters. I'm not even talking right now about the development of economic policy. I'm talking about here, for us as a people, to witness to the fact that Jesus is Lord, we have to take every thought captive, like Paul tells the Corinthians, unto obedience to Christ. How many thoughts did he say take captive? every thought. If we unexamine, we do not examine our views of the world, I promise you it will negatively affect people, and God loves people. So I have to ask real quickly, who are our widows? I would say they are widows, but inside this church, who are our widows that we could easily be and maybe even unknowingly discriminating about, discriminating against. What about the families that have children with special needs? And how easy it is to just move past them. Women in this congregation, in a society that's still very much like that culture, obsesses and doesn't even realize how obsessed it is with male power. How about those who are of the sub-dominant culture, right? Those who aren't dominant, those who are non-white, Hispanics, African-Americans, in our context, what, whatever these people are that can so easily be overlooked. People have now just take it away from race because this conversation is huge in regards to culture. They believe the same thing, the division is fundamentally around culture. Who are these? We have to be asking ourselves this question. Who are our widows? But we also have to ask ourselves this question. We have to evaluate our gospel. That word evangelical comes from gospel people. Evangel means gospel. We have to evaluate our evangel, our gospel. Paul actually told Peter to do this. Peter had a moment of discrimination in his own life, even after he'd received this incredible vision about how the gospel was to go to the Gentiles, which he couldn't believe. He still has a moment where he's sitting in the church and the Gentiles are eating on one side and he's a Jew, so he's eating with the Jews. You know what Paul did when he came in and saw it? Paul says he rebuked him to his face. And then he says this in Galatians 2.14. Look at what he says. But when I saw that their conduct there, multiple of them, was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, that's Peter, before them all, if you, though a Jew live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? In short, they were really trying to get Gentiles to become like Jews, to do all of these things with their bodies and adhere to all of these things. And he's going, well, you're doing that because you're saying that's what the people of God do. If you're a believer and you're calling them and you're living in such a way like you're an unbeliever, how could you then call them to live like you? Okay, now, folks, We're the church, the people of God called to bear witness and testimony to the truth that Jesus is king. To bear witness and testimony to the gospel in which the dividing wall of hostility has been broken. To bear witness and testify to the gospel that saves sinners of whom we are, as Paul said, chief. Lack of humility and pride are antithetical to the gospel. Hatred in your heart Ethnic superiority, cultural superiority are not in line with the gospel. An obsession with power is not in line with the gospel. A disregard for the marginalized, oppressed, and the poor is not in line with the gospel. That's what's happening in Acts chapter 6. How then, like Paul says, don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. How do we renew our mind? When culture can so affect us that we read our Bibles wrongly, here's a couple pieces of advice. Try to the best of your ability, there's more resources now than ever, to read the Bible along with other cultures. How's the Asian culture reading the Bible? How are Latinos reading the Bible? How are both the powerful and the powerless reading the Bible? Read it from other contexts, even globally. Then read it cross-traditions because we all, birds of a feather, flock together. We like to read our own people, but that can begin to disrupt things. Man, these Christians say this and these Christians say this and begins to help us understand this a little differently. Cross boundaries and cross barriers. Read it cross-generationally, both in our churches. Why we need older with younger and younger with older is because we get stuck in our ways. Millennials think like millennials. But boomers think like boomers. But it's also true to read what did the church say about this historically? And it'll help that. The apostles take this very, very seriously. And you'll begin to see that they provide a comprehensive solution. And I just think this is amazing. In verse 2, it says, And the 12 summoned the full number of disciples and said, It's not right that we should give up preaching the word to serve tables. What's the solution? The solution is comprehensive. It's root to shoot. The the solution is word and deed. The solution is we've got to maintain proclamation of the word and we have to maintain the promotion of the word in all of our lives. So word and deed, that's promotion and proclamation or proclamation and promotion. The solution is this, Christian witness is comprehensive. It has to do with all of life, and it has to do with the whole person. Therefore, the ministry that we embark on, the witness that we come at, has to uphold both word and deed. So I travel a decent amount, and I gain these points that happen. You build up points, which enables me to take my family of six back to see my family in Denver. Go Broncos. Um, Allows me to do that a couple times a year. Every time we get on the plane, there's a couple of our family members that will start breathing, and then one in particular will look at me and go, this is crazy. We're going to take a multiple ton thing of metal up thousands of feet in the air, and everybody's fine with it. I'm like, well, look around, because there's some people breathing in bags. (laughs) they're hyperventilating, other people are fine with it. Now imagine when that few ton thing gets up in the air is flying at thousands of feet, that the, the captain gets on and says, we're doing a survey right now, would you all participate? You're waiting, what's the survey? Here's the question, what's more important, the right wing or the left wing? You'd go, are you kidding me? Why is he asking that question? And if at that moment he said, because we lost our left wing, you'd be going, Lord Jesus, I always said I believed in you, I believe in you now, please be our wingman, right? Like, get on the other side and be our wingman. That's very much like this question of word or deed. And right here, the apostles are very clear. you got to understand what they're saying. When it says... And the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. They're not saying, oh, service is for somebody else. We're doing the really significant stuff. Like if that were true, they're directly in contrast with Jesus, who is their Lord, which is why they're getting beaten, who Jesus said, let me tell you who the greatest among you is. The one who serves. Let me tell you a little bit about me. I didn't come into this world to be served, but to serve, and to give my life as a ransom for many in costly love. That is not what they're saying. What they are saying at this moment is that if we don't commit ourselves to preaching and prayer to maintain that the gospel and Jesus himself has a central place in this community, we will entirely lose it all, and there will be more discrimination there will be more idolatry in the church, there will be less life and less joy and more darkness and more death. They understand what 1 John 4 is saying is that we only love God because he first loved us and his love for us because he loved us like this, so we ought to love one another. The only way we rightfully establish love for neighbor is if we understand the extravagant, costly, comprehensive love of God in Jesus Christ. And if that doesn't stay central, if we're not consistently, every time we gather together, participating in the life and blood of Jesus Christ at communion, if we aren't consistently putting ourselves under the authority of the word of God of which nothing stands above, because nothing stands above Christ, we will lose it to the consequence of people being rightfully loved the way God intended for them to be loved. The reality of word and deed is they work together interdependently. The way it would be said is symbiotically. That's the way it would be said in like biology or botany or as you study the environment. And symbiotically means two organisms, separate organisms, function together harmoniously and need each other that if they don't have each other, they ultimately die or are massively negatively affected. This is in contrast to parasitic. A parasite is like a flea on a dog. What does a dog do when he has a flea or she has a flea, right? Get off me. And what a parasite does is a flea sticks to a dog and gains its own benefit at expense of the other. So if we ever in a moment think about word and deed and we go, well, yeah, we serve the poor to share the gospel. No, 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 no. Or we ever say, listen, Doing deeds of justice, mercy, and love for these people is the gospel. We don't need to worry about all this preaching stuff. Both equally wrong. The mission of the church is to put divine love on display in public. If you sit with an individual and they're thirsty and you go, Jesus told me to love my neighbor as myself. When I'm thirsty, what do I want? What do you want? Something to drink, okay? This person's hungry. When I'm hungry, because he told me to love him as I love myself, what do I want? Something to eat, you'll prove that this afternoon. You'll be hungry, you'll go to the refrigerator, okay? Or you'll do a drive through When I don't have transportation, what do I want? Transportation. When I'm lonely, what do I want? A relationship. I mean, guys, Jesus made this really simple. We make it hard, this is really pretty simple when you love him. Now, let me ask you this. If you had somebody offer to you life to the full. And they said, we have the means to it. And you went, if life to the full is available, if I was loving them as I love myself, I'd want it. If somebody said to you that we're in a condition that ultimately is all about darkness and I'll offer you light, that's all about death, but I can offer you eternal life, to sit across from someone that doesn't know that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, that doesn't know that Jesus, who said no other name under heaven can people be saved but at the name of Jesus, then the loving thing, if I love my neighbor as myself, what do I do at that moment? Here you go, folks. Tell them about Jesus. You don't have to be a polished evangelist. Say like the man who was born blind that got healed. All I know is I was blind and now I see and he did it. All I know is that Jesus is the most beautiful, fascinating, powerful Person I've ever encountered in my life. You share it. This isn't one or the other. Because of love, it has to be both. It has to be both because it's all about love. Now, I have to say this um, because it's so important. The way in which they decide to look at an injustice like the Hellenite widows being neglected. They identify it fundamentally as unjust. They say it must be dealt with, but we have to maintain preaching. So the way in which we're going to ensure that they are cared for is they call seven men of full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom. You could say seven men of power, not that they were bodybuilders. They had power in the Spirit of God and of wisdom and are of good repute, high in character, And they appoint them to oversee. So first point of this, if you look at this, this is verse 3 and verse 4. First thing in verse 3 that you see is this is about character. This is not fundamentally about gifts. This wasn't at the moment like, here are the really good servants. Let's appoint them. Because here's what we know about Stephen and about Philip. These men had every bit the same gifts. You're going to see it next week. Stephen's a preacher, Philip, you're gonna see, these men had gifts just like the apostles. So this wasn't a gift issue. It was saying, we need to move the same kind of character, the same kind of godliness, the same kind of power into this area because it's every bit as important and that they would lead in that. Here's the second thing you need to see. All seven names are Greek names. Now slow down for a minute. Remember what we said about how could this possibly be happening? I would say very clearly, the power in the church has been tipped toward the Hebrew way. One of the reasons they're being neglected is there's no representation of Hellenists in the midst of their leadership. And so they say, and there's many reasons why they could say this, but they don't appoint five of the seven who are Greek Hellenists. They don't appoint six of the seven. All seven are Greek. These people knew. They knew the scriptures, Micah 6.8, he has shown you what is good and what the Lord requires of you, but to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with God. And they ensure that justice will be done by putting all seven of these people. This would be like us in this church right now going, you know what, we're having a really hard time dealing with families with children that have disabilities. So we're gonna appoint a team Not to just care for them, but to impact the totality of our church and all seven people that are leading all of us, not just them, that are leading all of us, our seven families or couples who have children with special needs. Or we have a really hard time caring for Latinos in our church. We're going to appoint seven Latinos to lead us all. Not to put off in another room and say, all the Latinos go over there, but to lead us all in the midst of this. That's what's happening here. They show an upholding of the word and an upholding of the life. And look at the result, verse seven. And the word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Here's what I love about that last statement. The priests had power. When the church started caring for the powerless, the powerful were undone and began to become obedient to the faith. Folks, there is something when justice is done, do justice, when mercy is loved, when people walk humbly with God that is an incredibly powerful witness. There's a man named Rodney Stark who writes about the rise of Christianity. We're gonna end with this quote and here's what he says. As we read this, don't read this at a distance, That was them. Isn't that amazing? This is who we are called to be as the people of God. Rodney Stark, in his book, The Rise of Christianity, talks about this early on in the book. He says, to cities filled with the homeless. This is how Christianity rose and grew. To cities filled with the homeless and impoverished, Christianity offered charity as well as hope. To cities filled with newcomers and strangers, Christianity offered an immediate basis for attachments. To cities filled with orphans and widows, Christianity provided a new and expansive sense of family. To cities torn by violent ethnic strife, Christianity offered a new basis for social solidarity. People had been enduring catastrophes for centuries without the aid of Christian theology or social structures. Hence, Stark says, I'm by no means suggesting that the misery of the ancient world caused the advent of Christianity, what I am going to argue is that once Christianity did appear, its superior capacity for meeting these chronic problems soon became evident and played a major role in its ultimate triumph. For what Christians brought was not simply an urban environment, but an entirely new culture. You know what he's saying? An entirely new way of life. A way of life that's what? By faith. What does the Bible tell us that faith comes by? Hearing, and hearing by the word of God. But then what does James tell us? That we can't just be hearers alone. If we have faith, we can't just be hearers of the word. We have to be doers of the word. So as we leave here as individuals, as families, as an entire church community, we have to be those that are consistently proclaiming and sitting under and hearing the word of God, but we can't be those who just hear it We have to be those who what? Do it. Let's pray. Father, we love you and praise you. And thank you so much for your great grace. This church was superior because of the work of Christ, not because of their own power. You tell us, Jesus, that apart from you, we can do nothing. But if we abide in you and you in us, then and only then will we bear much fruit. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.